I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And with the Lord's help, this morning we're going to begin a series in the book of Acts, and we'll be dealing with the thought, and this is the title of the message this morning, as well as the title of the series, that God has called us to be involved in a mission possible. Mission possible. We won't have a fancy theme song or anything that goes along with it. As we come to Acts chapter 1, and in just a moment we're going to read the first 14 verses of this chapter. This is really the introduction to the book of Acts. And as you've turned in your Bibles here to Acts chapter 1, you might notice that at the heading over the top of the book, this book is often titled, The Acts of the Apostles. And some have suggested that perhaps it would be better titled, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, what we're going to find as we study the book of Acts, it really is the acts of the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. It really is both. It is God calling men to do a work that seems impossible, and yet He's going to use them to do something that will be described later in the book of Acts as these that have turned the world upside down. They had come with a message which was new, a message which had just come upon the world. That is the message that there was hope in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin, for eternal life and relationship with God. Acts chapter 1, you'll notice, picks up just after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus died and was buried and then rose again, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus in His resurrected body showed Himself to the disciples many times. He fellowshiped with them. He even ate with them in His resurrected body. He encouraged them and instructed them. He gave them a charge that He was going to leave with them. And then ten days before the day of Pentecost, He ascended back to heaven. And He left the disciples to do a job that He had prepared them for. But I might suggest to you that the disciples felt less than prepared. They didn't realize how much Jesus had equipped them, nor did they realize the power of the resources that he was leaving them with and the ability that God was giving them to impact the world through something as simple as being a real Christian in a world that desperately needs to see God. So Acts chapter 1, look with me in verse number 1. The scripture says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. 
For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren." Now, you'll notice in the first verse that this particular book is addressed to a man whose name is Theophilus. That's a Greek name that simply means lover of God. We don't really know who Theophilus was, but based on the title that he had, we know that he was a man who wanted to know God better, who was in love with the Lord. We would suggest, and many Bible students have suggested, that perhaps Theophilus was someone who was in the court of Caesar or somehow attached to the Roman government, a man who had gotten saved and wanted to know more about Christianity and what it meant to follow Christ. This is actually the sequel to the book that we commonly refer to as the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke was also addressed to the same man, Theophilus, and when the writer of of Acts, whose name is also Luke, the same man, when he addresses the beginning of this book to Theophilus, he refers back to that book that he wrote previously about all the things that he already wrote of all the things that Jesus began both to do and to to teach. So these two books really go together. In the book of Luke, the gospel writer is laying out the story about Jesus birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Now, in the book of Acts, this is the continuation of the story. And sometimes we think of the Gospels and then Acts, and we think that's Jesus and this is the disciples. But really, it's the same story. It's just, it's just a continuation of the same theme, which I'm going to show you here in just a moment And that's the very first thought that I want you to consider here from Acts chapter 1, is that there is a continuation which is commanded to these disciples. Now, the disciples that are in mind 
in chapter 1 are particularly the 11, because we know Jesus called 12, but one of them was a traitor, and Judas Iscariot had already died. Now there are 11 apostles that are left, and there is also a company of other believers who have been scripturally baptized, who have followed along after Jesus during his ministry, who have become attached to this group of believers, what we refer to as a New Testament church, and Jesus referred to it as a New Testament church during his ministry as well. And so these are attached to this group of men who are we, we refer to as the apostles, and, and God calls them that. Some of these are mentioned in our passage, are some of the ladies, and we know there were a number of ladies who had gotten saved in Jesus' ministry, like Mary Magdalene and others who followed along with Jesus Christ and ministered to him and to the disciples, and they're mentioned here in this passage. There are also other disciples. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that at one point Jesus appeared to more than 500 disciples at one time which tells us that there were quite a few who had already started following Jesus and who who were coming along and were interested in, in giving their whole life to being followers of Christ. So Jesus is addressing primarily the 11, but also these others who are there as well. And in Acts chapter 1, we find something about what Jesus began to do. Now, as I mentioned in verse 1, when Luke talks about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, he's referring to the things that were written in the gospel of Luke pertaining to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, what is it that Jesus began? And then I want you to think, why is that word began significant? And it is very important to our study in the book of Acts. Well, you think about some of the things that Jesus began. Jesus, we know, according to Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he began a work of looking for people who were lost and preaching the gospel of the kingdom to them, ministering to them as he did so, bringing his disciples along and modeling for them what was going to take place and how this ministry would take take place. And he was doing this everywhere that he went, bringing his disciples along with him. But understand that work of seeking and saving began with Jesus in his ministry. Not only did Jesus begin to seek and to save that which was lost, Jesus also came to gather and to establish a church. He called some people out, These people covenanted together. Jesus spoke about how the church would be established and how it would continue on. Jesus gave them the ordinances. Jesus spoke to them about the type of relationships that they should have within the New Testament church. So he began something, and that's why we refer to it as the Lord's church. It's not Peter's church. It's the Lord's church. Every New Testament church is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, we know that Jesus came to provide and to preach redemption. Now, obviously, only Jesus can provide redemption. He is the one who died as the sacrifice for our sins, but he also preached redemption 
And his intention was for his disciples to continue this work. He wanted his disciples to continue seeking and saving that which was lost. Of course, the disciples themselves cannot save, but they can point to the one who can save. He wanted his disciples to continue gathering together as an assembly, and the intention was also for them to continue planting other churches, which is what we're going to find taking place in the book of Acts. As the word about the gospel spreads everywhere, people get saved and churches are organized. Jesus also came to provide and preach redemption, and it was his intention that his disciples would continue preaching that same message. This is why it's significant that the word began is used, and I might suggest to you that the work Jesus began to do in his ministry is the work that is still going on today. There is a continuation that is commanded not only to these disciples, but all the way down 2,000 years later to those of us who call ourselves disciples or followers of Jesus Christ, there is a continuation of that same mission that is expected. Now, what's also interesting in verse 1 is that Jesus began both to do and to teach. There is a perfect balance in Jesus between what he said and what he did. And this is a good model for us as well today Sometimes we can get so caught up with saying the right things and we forget to be doing the right things. Or sometimes we say, well, it's only important to do and let our actions speak for themselves. But there are some things that we also need to say. And so there is saying and doing. And Jesus modeled that and he expected his disciples to continue that perfect balance as they continued the work. Now it says that Jesus had given commandments, according to verse 2, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And the nature of these commandments, particularly the commandments that are in view in verse 2, the commandments that were given during the time that Jesus was in his resurrected body and was appearing to his disciples, the nature of those commandments had primarily to do with the continuation of that which Jesus began. He wanted his disciples to continue this work. And so he said things to them like, they were to preach the gospel to every creature. They were to go and proclaim the word of God and call people to be disciples. The Great Commission, as we refer to it, was given by Jesus at least five times Those five times are recorded in the scripture and each of those five times took place during that period between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension as he left the marching orders with his disciples for what they were to be doing after he returned to heaven. Jesus clearly wanted them to continue the work that he had begun and that he had trained them to do. Now we also find in verse 3, that Jesus showed himself alive to the disciples by many infallible proofs. This would become an important part of the message that the disciples were going to preach. The truth, the gospel truth, 
that Jesus is alive. That's why it's important that the record states that Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. That means it is clear that Jesus is alive. There was no doubt in these men's minds that Jesus had risen from the dead, that Jesus, in fact, had come back from the dead and had shown his triumph over the grave. They knew that Jesus was alive, and that is why these same men would go to their graves telling the truth that Jesus who died is alive, and he is the only way of salvation. He showed himself alive to them, but this also points out to us that there is a change, and if there's one thing that I want you to remember about the book of Acts, it is the word change. The book of Acts is a transitional book. There's a change that is going to take place in a short order between the apostles and Jesus in how they relate to Jesus. Because up to now, they have related to Jesus physically. They have had a human relationship with him. Then he died and he rose from the dead and he appeared to them in his resurrected body and he was there with them. But now... Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to heaven. The disciples are going to be left feeling as if they are alone. But Jesus has not left them. Jesus has already promised that he is going to provide for them, that he's going to continue in fellowship with them. However, that fellowship is going to be different. He's not physically going to be present with them, but he will continue to be with them until the end of the earth. Now he said to them that they were not to leave or depart from Jerusalem in verse 4. He wanted them to go back to Jerusalem. And of course, he had spoken to them and encouraged them and prepared them. And now he says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. There was a place there in the upper room That seemed to be familiar to the disciples and to Jesus. Uh, It seems like that's the same upper room where the Last Supper was observed and the Lord's Supper was instituted. Uh, It seems to be a place where Jesus would often come to and the disciples were familiar with. It seems to have been a large place because as we come a little bit later in the chapter, we find out that there are at least 120 disciples who are gathered in that place for a time of prayer. But Jesus wanted them to stay in that place. He wanted them to wait. And he told them that the reason they were to wait was for the promise of the Father. And this leads us to the second thought, which is that Jesus gave them an enabling to expect. He wanted them to continue doing the job that he had given to them. He commanded them But now he is assuring them, I'm going to give you the enabling that you need to do this. That's why you need to wait. You need to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father was mentioned in John 14, 15, and 16, even in chapter 17. But primarily in chapter 14 and 16, Jesus deals with the idea that there is coming another comforter who is going to enable them who is going to help them and guide them into truth, who is going to encourage them, who is going to teach them, and who is going to be their companion. 
This promise of the Father is obviously referring to the third person of the Trinity, who we refer to as the Holy Spirit. Here in our text, he's called the Holy Ghost in verse number 5. And Jesus said to them that John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, I want to point out to you that this idea of being baptized with the Holy Ghost, and it's compared to the water baptism that these men had already experienced under the ministry of John the Baptist, The idea of the word baptized means to be fully immersed, to be put under. And Jesus says there's coming a special occurrence that they are to wait for, and that is that the Holy Ghost is going to come upon them in a very obvious and apparent manner, and they are going to know that they have been baptized with the Holy Ghost. Now, I want to say something right here before we get too far along in the book of Acts. And that is that what we are observing in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is a very special occurrence. This is not something that is repeated, that is told to us in the New Testament that we should seek this kind of baptism with the Holy Ghost. This is a special occurrence whereby God is going to put his stamp of approval upon this assembly of believers in the absence of Jesus Christ He's going to say to the world, these are my people, and it is obvious that the Holy Spirit of God is upon them. So it's going to be a manifestation. Later we'll find that this manifestation is visible, this manifestation is powerful, and this manifestation accomplishes the purpose of God to seal this assembly with a sign, with a miracle that says... These are my people. Listen to their message. There will be things that go along with the Holy Ghost coming upon them. What I do want to point out to you is that what is being indicated in Acts chapter 1 and 2 is that there is coming a change in how the Holy Spirit interacts with believers. Because previous to this time, we find that the Holy Ghost would come upon believers for a season and for a purpose. And then, usually, the Holy Ghost would leave that person. He would empower a person for a job. In the Old Testament, we find the prophets and the judges being empowered by the Holy Spirit in this way, for a a task, for a job, for a moment, and then the Holy Spirit would remove from them. But now something different is about to happen, and that is that the Holy Ghost is going to come upon believers, and He is going to stay with them. He is called later in the book of Ephesians, the seal of God until the day of redemption. He is the down payment or the earnest of our inheritance. When the Holy Spirit moves inside the believer, you say, when does that happen? At the point of salvation. And for us, that's what we can appreciate and thank God for is that if you're saved, the Holy Spirit already indwells you and has sealed you, and you belong to Him. Now, you might ask, well, then what is is the indication? You know, if we are not to look for being baptized with the Holy Ghost, if that was something for the apostles, but not necessarily for us, what are we to do? Well, the command that is given to us as New Testament believers in this generation is that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. And so we are to realize and walk in obedience to the power that God has given to us in the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and indwells us. So you see the difference there. But what I want you to really notice is that Jesus is encouraging them by saying, I haven't left you with a job and no resources. He is giving them a job, but he wants them to know that he is going to enable them. He is going to give them the power that they need to do this job. Look at verse number 8. He said to them, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And that power is the same power that is used in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16 when it talks about how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In this same sense, you and I need the power of God upon our life. And that power is found in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. So he says to these disciples, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. It's going to be obvious that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You are going to receive power. And when you receive power, that power is going to be for a purpose. Now, the disciples were a little hung up you might have noticed in verse number 6 and 7, they were a little hung up with the timing of things. They're a lot like us. They wanted to know, okay, Lord, we're a little confused here. We're supposed to wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Ghost is going to come upon us. But what are you going to do about restoring the kingdom to Israel? When is that going to happen? And the Lord said to them, that's not for you to know. That's not for you to concern yourself with. That's something that is given to the Father, and it's not something that you even need to understand or occupy yourself with. You need to simply receive the power from the Holy Ghost and then get busy doing the task that I want you to fulfill. There's something about that that I want to point out to you, because as believers, we can sure get hung up with things that don't matter. We can get all caught up discussing and arguing different things that God hasn't even made clear or said to us. And in the arguing and the fussing about those things, we neglect the very thing that he has told us to do, which is to be witnesses. So there's an empowering that is coming, and that empowering is for a purpose. I find sometimes that there are people like Simon the sorcerer, who we'll see a little bit later in the book of Acts, who see the power of God as something that they could utilize for their own purpose. They'd like to be able to have lightning come out their fingertips. Look how powerful I am to do miracles, to raise people from the dead. Woo, that'd be great. I could really get a following. That's not why God gives us power. God doesn't give us his power to use for ourselves. This power is for a very specific purpose. It is for an enabling to do what he has called us to do. And that brings us to the third thought this morning, and that is that there are servants who are sent. There's a continuation that's commanded, an enabling that's expected, and some servants who are sent. In verse number 8, Jesus says to these men... But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And 
And notice the cumulative effect there of that word. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, as we think about these servants who were being sent, I want you to see that this was a very definite sending. Jesus said to them, ye shall be witnesses. Can I help you to understand this morning? If you are a child of God, especially if you are a member of a New Testament church, you have been given a job. You have been sent. You are intended to do something. God did not save you so that you could sit here on this earth and gather up the little things that are important to you and fritter away your time until you get to heaven and say, well, I'm so glad I made it to be with the Lord. He left you here for a reason. And Jesus says to these men, now time is of the essence. Ye shall be witnesses. That word witnesses indicates not only that this is a definite sending and make no mistake about it. There was no plan B. There wasn't some other way that this was going to get done. This was do or die. In this case, it's going to be do and die. And that leads us to the cost. Because Jesus said to them, ye shall be witnesses. The root word that is found here in verse number 8, witnesses, comes from the word that we get our English word martyr from. It's the idea of testifying with your life, with your blood, with your breath, all the way to the point of death. It is a person who is so convinced of their message that nothing can sway them from sharing that message because they believe it with all their heart. And Jesus says to these men, you men know, you know that I died. You know that I rose from the dead and that I'm alive. You know what took place in my ministry. You know the message that I preached. You know the power of God. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. There's going to be a cost involved for these men. Now, these men were very much aware that to share the message of Jesus had a cost. After all, they had just seen Jesus crucified. Just 40 days before, they had seen Jesus put on the cross. They had heard the the mob cry out, crucify him. They knew that the world, and especially there in Jerusalem, was no friend to this message. So they realized and they recognized that to go forward preaching that Jesus was alive could very well cost their life. They'd already seen the violent reaction to the message. And Jesus is saying to them, you're going to need Holy Spirit power if you're going to be witnesses unto me. Now, what we know that these men did not know is that of those 11 men, 10 of them would go to their death because of the message of Jesus Christ. In short order, some of them would be martyred just within a period of a a couple of months, just a short time. It's not going to take very long till some of these men begin giving their lives because of the message of the gospel. Only one, the apostle John, 
would not face martyrdom, but that in and of itself was likely a miracle of God to preserve him because they desperately tried to kill him. But God still had a message for him to record, which is found in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which needed to be penned for us before the death of the Apostle John. What I'm saying to you is that these men did pay a high price for being witnesses of Jesus Christ. So what is it that causes us to think that we can live a comfortable life and just go along and enjoy all the aspects of our life and pay no price and have no cost attached to our discipleship as if somehow only that first generation of believers needed to pay something? I suggest to you that if we're going to follow Christ, there's going to be a cost for us. We don't know what that cost is, and we don't go out to provoke people to, to, to take the cost out of us. But I suggest to you that if you're going to live for Christ and witness for Christ, it's going to cost you something. It might not cost you your death, but it might cost you your life. You know what I'm saying? Some people are willing to die for the gospel, but are you willing to live for the gospel? Are you willing to lay down your plans for your life and submit them to him and say, Lord, whatever you want, I just know this. I want to be a witness for you. Now, you'll also notice that it's a comprehensive plan of sending because he says to them, ye shall be witnesses unto me both. You see that word both? That means not one at a time, but all at once in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, you could forgive these men for looking at each other and saying, us? To all those places? At the same time? How are we going to do that? That doesn't make any sense. But understand, that's why God was giving them the enabling because this was something that they could not do in their own strength. They did not have the resources. They didn't have the money. They didn't speak the languages. They didn't have the training. They were not learned men. But God said, I'm going to use you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. We'll not spend time detailing all those places and their significance, but you will find in the later pages of the book of Acts, this is exactly what happened. This is where these men went and the gospel was published and people were saved and churches were established and the world was affected. If you think about the sending of these servants, then you might understand that we could use one word about this overwhelming. You want us to do what, Lord? And you might think the same thing about the commission that God has given to Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. How are we supposed to do that? How are we going to fulfill that responsibility? Lord, we're just a few folks. We don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower. What are we supposed to do? Well, I suggest to you that the same God who enabled the disciples to do this, will enable us to do what he's intended for us to do. Don't be overwhelmed 
Rather, be overjoyed that He wants to use us in His service. Servants are sent. But then we find that priorities are patterned. After sharing these words with the disciples, the Bible says that Jesus, in that moment, was taken up. Now, I've tried to imagine in my mind what this must have been like many times, and I doubt if I'm seeing it correctly. Maybe one day we'll get to see a rerun. God will play it back and let us see what it was like. I just know what the scripture says. He was talking to them. They were watching him, listening to him. And all of a sudden, he was taken up. Which means he started going up. And after a while, he went up pretty high because it says that a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, clouds are usually up pretty high. And so... I mean, just just follow with me. They're talking, and he starts going up. And that's about how it would feel, wouldn't it? Oh, wait a second. He was just here, and he's gone. And just about that moment, two men in white, two angelic beings just appeared right there next to him and said, Hey, guys, what you looking at? Why are you men of Galilee gazing up into the heavens? What's going on? Uh, 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 uh. And then those men said, You heard what he said. Get back to Jerusalem. He wants you in Jerusalem to wait. He wants you there in that place. This same Jesus, verse 11, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, you might, you might, because of your anticipation of that promise, and that is a promise, he's coming again. You might maybe have the tendency to walk around looking up into the heavens. Is he coming? Where is he? But that's not what God wants us to do. You see, I mean, we should be anticipating his coming. We know it's going to happen. But these men realized, you know what? Jesus is gone. He told us something to do. And so they returned. They went unto Jerusalem from that mount, the Mount of Olives. They came into the upper room. What are the priorities that are patterned by their behavior? First of all, obedience. Jesus hadn't told them many things to do at this point. The only thing they knew, in fact, the one command that they knew for this moment was, go to Jerusalem and wait. And to their credit, these men said, well, it's pretty simple. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's wait. And that's what they did. They went to the upper room. They gathered together with the other disciples and they waited For the promise of the Father. Now it's understandable why they would be looking up after Jesus when he had ascended. But that wasn't what Jesus wanted them to do. He wanted them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And I want to just emphasize once again to you. That it's not God's will for you and I to stand gazing up into the heavens. 
It's not God's will for us to sit around trying to solve theological puzzles that God hasn't given us the information to solve. I mean, sometimes we can be guilty of trying to figure out the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem and what's that all about and let's discuss it. Let's have a, let's have a theological class about it. Why? If God wanted us to know, He would have told us. So let's get busy doing the thing that He told us to do. Sometimes we're just delaying obedience because we don't want to do what He told us to do. It's very clear what God wants us to be doing right now as a church, and it has everything to do with verse 8. We are to be witnesses unto Him. We are to be witnesses in, to the uttermost part of the earth. That is clearly what God wants us to do. These disciples patterned obedience. Second of all, these disciples patterned patience. They needed to wait for the promise. As urgent as the task was, it was not God's will for them to go back to Jerusalem and start talking to people. It was not yet time for them to go into the streets of Jerusalem and say, Jesus is alive and we've seen Him and we saw Him ascend back to heaven. It's not time. Right now, their job is to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. And they're going to wait a while. Ten days. Ten days they're going to sit in the upper room and pray and talk about what Jesus had taught them and encourage one another and wait. Now, that's some kind of a church meeting, isn't it? But God had a purpose. I'm sure they were eager to begin, but there were some things that had to come first. Sometimes we get in a hurry to do what we think God wants us to do when what God wants us to do is to wait. He wants us to prepare. He wants us to be patient Though there is urgency in the plan of God, there's never a rush. This is something that we observe in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He had tremendous urgency, but he was never in a hurry. He was always right on time. And if you walk with the Lord, you'll find the same to be true in your life. There's no reason to get anxious about the place where you are and pine for some different place. If where you are is God's will for you, then be content where you are and serve God where you are and wait for Him where you are and wait for Him to move you. In God's time, it'll all make sense. These disciples would have been supremely frustrated if they had gone into the streets of Jerusalem before it was time to proclaim the message that Jesus was alive. But when the time came and they were properly equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit they would step into those same streets and declare that message and a tremendous revival would take place. So they were content to be patient and to wait, patient for the promise. You and I should be patient in obeying the specific commands of God for our life in the season where we find ourselves and wait for His leadership to take the next step. Third of all, their priority that is patterned is found in verse number 14 as prayer and supplication. One of the things that we can do when we are waiting is we can pray. And sometimes we diminish prayer and we set it aside as 
unimportant or non-significant, but prayer is the work. Prayer is every, every bit working in the sense that God hears and answers prayer. Their prayer meeting for 10 days was not a waste of time. It was God preparing them. It was the work that God had called them to do for that season. Could you imagine a 10-day prayer meeting? That would be something. That would be, that would be quite an accomplishment. Of course, they were fellowshipping with one another and with the Father. And so for them, I think those 10 days went by so quickly as they were waiting for what God had for them. Finally, we, we find their priority that's patterned here is fellowship. One thing that was happening to these disciples as they continued in prayer and supplication was they were coming to a place of one accord. Harmony. Unity. A togetherness. A united vision. They were coming to the place of understanding what God wanted and how God was going to use them. They were casting aside their own ambitions and their own plans and their own pursuits And saying, not my will, but thine be done. In that place of fellowship, these disciples cast their lot together. They said, we'll live together. We'll die together. But what matters is that we follow Jesus together. This is the kind of determination, the kind of camaraderie and fellowship that God wants every New Testament church to experience as we enter into a covenant with one another and with God, that we are here not to live our own lives, but to serve Him with abandon. And so they began to fellowship one with another. Their priorities are patterned. By the way, obedience, patience, prayer, and fellowship, along with the ministry of the Word, is going to make up the full package of what God is going to do in and through this assembly. And we're going to see it over and over and over again in the book of Acts. It's not complicated. It's simple. But it is painful. Because it requires setting some things aside and adopting God's vision as our own. Now, in relation to this, as we think about these disciples, and we think about ourselves, I want to encourage you this morning that God wants us as well to continue. Here we are 2,000 years later. The mission has not changed. The mission is still the same. We don't have to make up our own mission. This is one of the nice things about being a church. You know, all these organizations talk about crafting a mission statement. We have one. It's divine. God gave it to us. We don't even have to write our own. All we have to do is agree with His and say, okay, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Let's get busy with that task. Let's let's get involved in that. Let's put our resources, let's put our energy, let's put our vision behind that. And as we do that, let's expect that God is going to give us the power of the Holy Spirit to do that job. Because we know that we aren't sufficient in and of ourselves. If we try to do this with our own strength, our own ability, our own wisdom, we're going to fall flat. There's no way that we can accomplish this in our own power. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And then let's regard ourselves as servants who've been sent. 
My life is not my own. Your life is not your own. We answer to a master who wants to call us and send us forth into the harvest. And we would be poor servants indeed if we took our life and said, It's mine. You can't have it, God. We are servants who are sent. And there are some priorities that we need to pursue after. And may God allow us in this coming year to be these kind of servants who get our lives prioritized in such a way that we begin to expect that God can and will use us for His glory. Do you know God, who was working in the book of Acts, is still working today? In some ways, as I think about the book of Acts, and you'll find it's going to be a long time till we get there. But when we get to the last chapter, you're going to find that the book of Acts ends very abruptly. Just like, there's no conclusion, there's no fancy words, there's no prayer of blessing. It's just done. And some people have puzzled over that. Why is it that that way? What is the case? I suggest to you, because we are still, though the Bible, the revelation is ended, but in a certain sense, we are still writing this story with our lives and our obedience to the Lord. God is still working. He has not died. He has not stopped working in this world. He is still working in the world around us. And He's calling us to be a part of that work by being witnesses unto Him. Now, my question for you this morning, as we conclude, is in regards to where you are at in relation to obeying God's command. For instance, I wonder this morning if you have ever obeyed the gospel. I wonder if you have ever repented of your sin and believed on Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. I wonder if you've flown the white flag of surrender and said, I'm going to stop living for myself and I'm going to give my life to Christ. You know, that's what should happen at the time of salvation. Where are you at in relation to God's command to obey the gospel? Have you ever been born again? And if you've never been born again, that's the starting place. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said. We want you to come to Christ today. Now, you might be here this morning and say, Yeah, absolutely. I know that I'm saved. I know I've been born again. Then my second question is this. Have you entered into a covenant of life agreement with an assembly of believers? Are you a part of a New Testament church that is actively engaged in carrying out the Great Commission? Because if you've been saved, that's God's will for your life. He wants you to be a part of that type of an assembly. Are you walking in one accord? If you're a part of a church, are you endeavoring to fulfill the marching orders that have been given? Or are you just biding your time? Are you distracted with other pursuits today? Are you experiencing the daily reality of yielding to the Spirit as you walk in the purpose and the plan of God? This mission is possible, but it's going to require our involvement. And my question for you is, where are you at in response to the command of God? 